How y'all doing there? So I'd like to thank y'all for stopping by to have a cigar with Uncle Maduro. Man, look at him. Now y'all know, before we get started, all I'd like to tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm smoking on a My Father, La Bajo 1922. In other words, I'm smoking on a My Father, Maduro. Man, let me tell you here. Man, before I get started and tell y'all what I think about this tea, first y'all know I got to read and tell y'all what these folks say. Because there's a little story behind the stick here. All right. Now, these folks, now these folks are saying this My Father, La Bajou, 1922, is another great extension of the popular My Father line. French for the jewel. La Bajou is a rich, full-body treat in typical pepin form, featuring a Habana Oscar wrapper and a healthy mix of Nicaragua long fillers. La Bajou 1922 exude a robust array of flavors delivered in a remarkable smooth fashion. Complex, unique, and satisfying. The Garcia's family's new star, my father La Bajou 1922 received Cigar of the Year honors for 2015. An impressive 97 point rating. Now that's the highest rating I've read so far. Noting, it takes a profound understanding of cigar tobaccos to create a smoke that conveys uncanny impressions of dark chocolate-covered raisins, savory leather, and a sweet and salty finish that resonates on the palate. Ooh, those such pretty words. But let me tell y'all something. This is a good stick. Now, the history, I can't say the history behind the stick, but I picked up this stick yesterday. I was at, uh, of course, Friday night at Roz, you know, our local, our... Uh, regular weekly get together with the fellas and when i walked into the shop uh, the other day i did a little um i did a little talk on that i think it was what was that thing i did that cigar man my mind just going going crazy these days it was a solemn 13 i had that a solemn 13 now that solemn 13 is a big ring ring gauge cigar and uh i really enjoyed it but i really didn't enjoy it because it's so big it's so bulky it's not something that i would really go out inside the house and smoke Cause it looked like a big penis, <laughs> you know, one of the big penis that you see on Pornhub. Oh, oh, not me, not Pornhub, but you know, you know, them enlarged fellas. You know, that's what it kind of looked like. And I don't want nothing in my mouth in public smoking that thing. But when I went in the cigar spot yesterday, I asked Ross, the proprietor of the cigar spot, I asked him about that Ashton, that uh, that um, Asada Thirteen, and what did he think about it? And he wasn't very favorable to it. You know, and he pretty much said everything that I kind of recognize inside my head when I picked that thing up. It's a big, bulky cigar, you know. Big, bulky. It definitely looks like one of them big black dildos. Well, can't say it like that. It looks like one of them big things, okay? And uh, it was an okay smoke, but it wasn't the typical good smoke that I usually pick up, you know, from Illusion or or or, 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 or Padron or A Fuente or something like that or even the Ashton. You know, it was definitely a lower quality cigar. And Ross didn't, Ross don't carry him. And if some Ross don't carry him, I don't particularly too much care about Because Ross know his cigars and he don't bring nothing to the cigar spot that, you know, he won't smoke or he don't think is, is, is pretty decent. Now, sometimes you got to bring something in at a lower price point, you know, because you got people that all price point. Some people just, 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 just want to smoke a cigar. You know, they don't care nothing about the quality of the cigar or the blend of the cigar or anything like that. They just, they just want something to smoke. They still want tobacco to smoke. The Ross wasn't very, very, um, he didn't have too many kind words to say about this Ashton 13 as far as quality go. But, and I was asking him, you know, and we got there, I got a good education from Ross also. I got some uh, information here. 
that I'm going to trans transfer into a PDF file, and then I'm going to make an audio of it on uh, cigar making, you know, from seed, you know, all the way up to picking. He gave me a really good education. And, I, and, and see, that's the one thing that I like about Roz. You know, when it comes to cigars, you know, he always takes a time out. It ain't never no bother for him to tell you about cigars, at least give you his opinion on the quality of cigars. And um, he gave me a real good education, and I really enjoyed it. So we got to talking. Um, we, we're talking about, we, to, almost to the end of our little talk, we was talking about, talking about the Connecticut rapper, you know, because he was telling me about the different places around the world where the, uh, the rappers are made, you know, and he gave me a little education on different types of rapper too, which is very interesting. And uh, we started talking about the Connecticut because I never really had a good Connecticut. And he was telling me how the Connecticut rappers are made up in Connecticut, but uh, how, why, you know, I always thought the Connecticut cigars was a little, was is, is a mild cigar. And he kind of explained to me why it's a mild cigar, you know, how they, um, you know, how they grow it. You know, they grow it under a cheesecloth where it doesn't get a whole lot of sun. You know, so the leaves are real thin. So that's why the wrappers are thin. So it doesn't have that robust flavor to it because it's kind of sheltered. You know, I guess I guess the polite way to say about a Connecticut is now. Now I'm, now, now I'm just kind of paraphrase here. The light way to the Connecticut wrapper is almost like a sheltered child. You know, when a sheltered child who ain't used to the real world, they weep, they go out there, they get taken advantage by everybody versus a child versus a child that's been out there in the world. It's been dealing with things when he's been growing up, he become tough. So that's how it is with the Connecticut. The Connecticut is grown under cheesecloth, so it doesn't get a whole lot of sun, so it doesn't get that robust, it doesn't get that, you know, that bulkiness to it versus your other types of cigars that's actually grown, you know, like a sun grown, that's actually grown out in the sun, you know, like the other different kind of wrappers. But, you know, I'm going to give y'all a little talk on that, you know, a little later, because I think it was a very interesting conversation. that Roz and I had. I thought I learned a lot from that guy from Louisiana when I seen that little video on him. But I think I learned more from Raj yesterday. And like I said, the information that he gave me is some good information. So I know a lot of folks out there, you know, ain't pretty interested on how cigars are, are made, uh, you know, from seed to picking, you know, to when it gets to us. But uh, I found it very interesting. One of the interesting things that he said was, he said that people be surprised that before a cigar gets to you, it probably went through over 200 hands. 200 hands. I'm talking about a handmade cigar. Probably went through 200 hands, and that probably, and that cigar, then probably, they, they, they probably sit for about two years before it came to you. Now, everything that he said gave me a great, great, greater appreciation for cigars. It doesn't make me look at cigars in price point. You know, like some people look at, like I used to look at cigars, I did, you know, anything like 15, 16, 20 dollars. Oh man, that's too much money for a cigar. But after he gave me that little education, you know, I got a great appreciation. For cigars and I think cigars are priced too low. I mean, when you pay like eight dollars for or seven, eight dollars for a good Padron, you know, like one thousand or something like that, that's a good stick. You know, even a Louisiana, when you pay at an eight, nine dollar price point for a Louisiana, that's a good stick. If the general public, especially a lot of us aficionados, well, I can't, I'm not aficionado, so I'm gonna put myself into aficionado category, but I think a lot of person, the average cigar smoker, would really get an education. You know, on cigars and how they made, he would have a great appreciation for the price point.
That's why Roz always say the best cigar there is is the one that you enjoy smoking, no matter what the price point is. So, but I'm like this, but I'm, I'm gonna give y'all a little give y'all a little talk. Well, you know, once I get all the information together, because he gave it to me, you know, on a on a like on like a little fly type of thing. So I gotta uh, so I gotta translate that information and then put it in audio form. I'm gonna do a little talk on that because I found it very interesting. Like I say, I have a greater respect now, you know, when I go into a cigar spot and I see the price point of some of these cigars. Because I know how they make, I have a better understanding, should I say, on how these cigars are made from seed to picking to on the shelf. You see what I'm saying? And, and it's a lot of goes into these cigars. When you pick up a stick for eight, nine dollars, don't you be ashamed. Even, even if you find a light cigar that you want for like a fifteen dollars, you know, don't, you know, if you, if that what you want, that what you like, man, you buy it. You support it because, you know, it's a lot. When it's handmade, there's a lot goes into it. Now, me personally, I don't like no machine made cigar. You know, I like handmade. I got to have that good quality. And I'm learning too. Like I said, I'm not no cigar aficionado. But look here. I got to talk here for y'all tonight. Tonight, we're going to take a look at the pharmaceutical lobby and also the pharmaceutical industry. Man, let me tell you something here. I learned a heck of a whole lot that I didn't know. Now, we all got the idea. We talk about big pharma, right? Big pharma and highly influenced policy in Washington, D.C. Well, I'm going to give you guys a little insight on the pharmaceutical lobby and also the pharmaceutical industry. Now, at the same time, I had a, I have a great appreciation for, for the pharmaceutical industry, for some of the things that they didn't brought to us and help us live a long time. But there's also a lot of uh, a lot of shenanigans, you know, in the game also. And I kind of understand the government, you know, for trying to protect us. But whenever you look at anything, even with this coronavirus thing, I always say you follow the money. You always follow the money. And a lot of times, I'm telling y'all right now, they have a cure for things because a lot of things that um, a lot of these viruses and and stuff that uh that affects us is like uh is like is is like somebody told me about the Bible one time. You know, they say the Bible, uh, the what they say they they, they how did they put it? The guy phrased it that the Bible, some to the extent that it gives you. It gives you the problem, and it gives you the cure. I, I, I kind of messed that up there in my thinking here. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that a lot of things, a lot of viruses and stuff out here, these these folks always have, already have a cure for it. And if they don't have a cure for it, they can get a cure really pretty, pretty quick for it. Because we have advanced a whole lot in the realm of medicine. And I don't think there's not too many viruses and germs and stuff out there that they don't know about. But see, when it comes down to it, you always have to follow the money in anything. And like I tell you about this coronavirus, and it's just my opinion and not the facts. They have a cure for this coronavirus. They've been had a cure for this coronavirus. But it all boils down to money. And when, when, when you have something that's affecting a whole lot of people, sometimes it's much easier to strong on the government to do things you want them, want them to do at the price point you want them to do You know when you let it out there. You know, when you let it out there, I'm not going to say the pharmaceutical industry, you don't let Corona and these other viruses out there, but I'm just saying, you always have to follow the money. So I'm going to let you guys take a listen to this, and I'm not going to blow it all, and I'm going to sit back here, and I'm going to smoke on this, um, I'm smoking this My Father Maduro, you know, because this is a really good stick. I, I'm, you know what? This is a really good stick. And like I said, the, I, I forgot to tell you, in our conversation, you know, when Raza, uh, you know, he was telling me about, we, we were talking about Connecticut rap. You know, we went into the humidor, so I asked him, I said, well, you know, can you recommend a good uh, Connecticut rap 
cigar for me. And he said, well, he said, nah, he said, I really don't smoke Connecticut because, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not, in other words, it's not strong enough for him because they're all in that, probably in that mild range. And like I said, again, it's like a rap. So he showed me, I told him, he showed me, you know, to my father, you know, in which I smoked my father before, but I never smoked this Maduro. And let me tell you something, this is a good stick. Now, I know y'all can't, but he always say this is a good stick. Well, this is a good stick. Now, this is a full body. It's definitely a full body cigar. But I really enjoyed this cigar all the way from the, from, from the beginning, all the way down to the nub. I really enjoyed this stick. So, if y'all ever get a chance to pick up this My Father, La Flora, Maduro, I call it, I, I call it My Father Maduro. Man, y'all pick this stick up. I call it Maduro, 1922. Y'all pick this stick up. Y'all try this stick. If y'all like full body, this is, a, this is a really good cigar. But look here, I'm going to sit back here with this thing here, and I'm going to let y'all take a listen to this. And as always, I'm going to come back on the flip side and get, talk a little something. Hope I don't go off into a rant. <laughs> Excuse me. Hope I don't go off into a rant. But I'm going to come back and talk to y'all a little bit something. Y'all take a listen to this, all right? All right now. Let's take a look at the pharmaceutical lobby and how they allegedly pay to drive pharmaceutical industry policy. Or better yet, big pharma policy. The pharmaceutical lobby refers to the representatives of pharmaceutical drug and biomedicine companies who engage in lobbying in favor of the pharmaceutical industry and its products. Political influence in the United States. The largest pharmaceutical companies and their two trade groups, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, PHRMA, and Biotechnology Innovation Organization, lobbied on at least 1,600 pieces of legislation between 1998 and 2004. According to the Nonpartisan Center for Responsive Politics, pharmaceutical companies spent $900 million on lobbying between 1998 and 2005, more than any other industry. During the same period, they donated $89.9 million to federal candidates and political parties, giving approximately three times as much to Republicans as to Democrats. According to the Center for Public Integrity, from January 2005 through June 2006 alone, the pharmaceutical industry spent approximately $182 million on federal lobbying. The industry has 1,274 registered lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Controversy in the U.S. Prescription drug costs in the U.S. Critics of the pharmaceutical lobby argue that the drug industry's influence allows it to promote legislation friendly to drug manufacturers at the expense of patients. The lobby's influence in securing the passage of the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act of 2003 was considered a major and controversial victory for the industry, as it prevents the government from directly negotiating prices with drug companies who provide those prescription drugs covered by Medicare. Price negotiations are instead conducted between manufacturers and the pharmacy benefit managers providing Medicare Part D benefits under contract with Medicare. In 2010 the Congressional Budget Office estimated the average discount negotiated by pharmacy benefit managers at 14%. The high price of U.S. prescription drugs has been a source of ongoing controversy. Corporations state that the high costs are the result of pricey research and development programs. Critics point to the development of drugs having only small incremental benefit. According to Marsha Angel, the former head of the New England Journal of Medicine, the United States is the only advanced country that permits the pharmaceutical industry to charge exactly what the market will bear. In contrast, the Rand Corporation and authors from the National Bureau of Economic Research have argued that price controls stifle innovation and are economically counterproductive in the long term. Now, let's take a look at why HR pharmaceutical industry, or better called, bad pharma. The pharmaceutical industry discovers, develops, produces, and markets drugs or pharmaceutical drugs for use as medications to be administered 
or self-administered, to patients, with the aim to cure them, vaccinate them, or alleviate the symptoms. Pharmaceutical companies may deal in generic or brand medications and medical devices. They are subject to a variety of laws and regulations that govern the patenting, testing, safety, efficacy and marketing of drugs. History. Mid-1800s, 1945, from botanicals to the first synthetic drugs. The modern pharmaceutical industry began with local apothecaries that expanded from their traditional role distributing botanical drugs such as morphine and quinine to wholesale manufacture in the mid-1800s, and from discoveries resulting from applied research. Intentional drug discovery from plants began with the isolation between 1803 and 1805 of morphine, an analgesic and sleep-inducing agent, from opium by the German apothecary assistant Friedrich Sir Turner, who named this compound after the Greek god of dreams, Morpheus. By the late 1880s, German dye manufacturers had perfected the purification of individual organic compounds from tar and other mineral sources and had also established rudimentary methods in organic chemical synthesis. The development of synthetic chemical methods allowed scientists to systematically vary the structure of chemical substances, and growth in the emerging science of pharmacology expanded their ability to evaluate the biological effects of these structural changes. Epinephrine, norepinephrine, and amphetamine. By the 1890s, the profound effect of adrenal extracts on many different tissue types had been discovered, setting off a search both for the mechanism of chemical signaling and efforts to exploit these observations for the development of new drugs. The blood pressure raising and vasoconstrictive effects of adrenal extracts were of particular interest to surgeons as hemostatic agents and as treatment for shock, and a number of companies developed products based on adrenal extracts containing varying purities of the active substance. In 1897, John Abel of Johns Hopkins University identified the active principle as epinephrine, which he isolated in an impure state as the sulfate salt. Industrial chemist Jokichi Takamine later developed a method for obtaining epinephrine in a pure state, and licensed the technology to Park Davis. Park Davis marketed epinephrine under the trade name Adrenaline. Injected epinephrine proved to be especially efficacious for the acute treatment of asthma attacks, and an inhaled version was sold in the United States until 2011, Primatine Mist. By 1929 epinephrine had been formulated into an inhaler for use in the treatment of nasal congestion. While highly effective, the requirement for injection limited the use of epinephrine clarification needed and orally active derivatives were sought. A structurally similar compound, ephedrine, actually more similar to norepinephrine, was identified by Japanese chemists in the Mahuang plant and marketed by Eli Lilly as an oral treatment for asthma. Following the work of Henry Dale and George Barger at Burroughs Welcome, Academic chemist Gordon All synthesized amphetamine and tested it in asthma patients in 1929. The drug proved to have only modest anti-asthma effects but produced sensations of exhilaration and palpitations. Amphetamine was developed by Smith, Klein, and French as a nasal decongestant under the trade name Benzedrine Inhaler. Amphetamine was eventually developed for the treatment of narcolepsy, postencephalitic Parkinsonism, and mood elevation in depression and other psychiatric indications. It received approval as a new and non-official remedy from the American Medical Association for these uses in 1937 and remained in common use for depression until the development of tricyclic antidepressants in the 1960s. Discovery and Development of the Barbiturates Diethyl barbituric acid was the first marketed barbiturate. It was sold by Bayer under the trade name Veronal. In 1903, Hermann Emil Fischer and Joseph von Meering disclosed their discovery that diethyl barbituric acid, formed from the reaction of diethylmalonic acid, phosphorus oxychloride, and urea, induces sleep in dogs. The discovery was patented and licensed to Bayer Pharmaceuticals, which marketed the compound under the trade name Veronal as a sleep aid beginning in 1904. 
Systematic investigations of the effect of structural changes on potency and duration of action led to the discovery of phenobarbital at Bayer in 1911 and the discovery of its potent anti-epileptic activity in 1912. Phenobarbital was among the most widely used drugs for the treatment of epilepsy through the 1970s, and as of 2014, remains on the World Health Organization's list of essential medications. The 1950s and 1960s saw increased awareness of the addictive properties and abuse potential of barbiturates and amphetamines and led to increasing restrictions on their use and growing government oversight of prescribers. Today, amphetamine is largely restricted to use in the treatment of attention deficit disorder and phenobarbital in the treatment of epilepsy. Insulin A series of experiments performed from the late 1800s to the early 1900s revealed that diabetes is caused by the absence of a substance normally produced by the pancreas. In 1869, Oskar Minkowski and Joseph von Meering found that diabetes could be induced in dogs by surgical removal of the pancreas. In 1921, Canadian professor Frederick Banting and his student Charles Best repeated the study and found that injections of pancreatic extract reversed the symptoms produced by pancreas removal. Soon, the extract was demonstrated to work in people, but development of insulin therapy as a routine medical procedure was delayed by difficulties in producing the material in sufficient quantity and with reproducible purity. The researchers sought assistance from industrial collaborators at Eli Lilly & Co. based on the company's experience with large-scale purification of biological materials. Chemist George B. Walden of Eli Lilly & Company found that careful adjustment of the pH of the extract allowed a relatively pure grade of insulin to be produced. Under pressure from Toronto University and a potential patent challenge by academic scientists who had independently developed a similar purification method, an agreement was reached for non-exclusive production of insulin by multiple companies. Prior to the discovery and widespread availability of insulin therapy the life expectancy of diabetics was only a few months. Early anti-infective research, salversan, prontosil, penicillin, and vaccines. The development of drugs for the treatment of infectious diseases was a major focus of early research and development efforts, in 1900 pneumonia, tuberculosis, and diarrhea were the three leading causes of death in the United States and mortality in the first year of life exceeded 10%. In 1911 arsphenamine, the first synthetic anti-infective drug, was developed by Paul Ehrlich and chemist Alfred Bertheim of the Institute of Experimental Therapy in Berlin. The drug was given the commercial name Salversan. Ehrlich, noting both the general toxicity of arsenic and the selective absorption of certain dyes by bacteria, hypothesized that an arsenic-containing dye with similar selective absorption properties could be used to treat bacterial infections. Arsphenamine was prepared as part of a campaign to synthesize a series of such compounds and found to exhibit partially selective toxicity. Arsphenamine proved to be the first effective treatment for syphilis, a disease which prior to that time was incurable and led inexorably to severe skin ulceration, neurological damage, and death. Ehrlich's approach of systematically varying the chemical structure of synthetic compounds and measuring the effects of these changes on biological activity was pursued broadly by industrial scientists, including Bayer scientists Joseph Klarer, Fritz Mietzsch, and Gerhard Domach. This work, also based in the testing of compounds available from the German dye industry, led to the development of Prontosil, the first representative of the sulfonamide class of antibiotics. Compared to arsphenamine, the sulfonamides had a broader spectrum of activity and were far less toxic, rendering them useful for infections caused by pathogens such as streptococci. In 1939, Domach received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for this discovery. Nonetheless, the dramatic decrease in deaths from infectious diseases that occurred prior to World War II was primarily the result of improved public health measures such as clean water and less crowded housing, and the impact of anti-infective drugs and vaccines was significant mainly after World War II. In 1928, 
Alexander Fleming discovered the antibacterial effects of penicillin, but its exploitation for the treatment of human disease awaited the development of methods for its large-scale production and purification. These were developed by a U.S. and British government-led consortium of pharmaceutical companies during the Second World War. Early progress toward the development of vaccines occurred throughout this period, primarily in the form of academic and government-funded basic research directed toward the identification of the pathogens responsible for common communicable diseases. In 1885 Louis Pasteur and Pierre-Paul Emile Roux created the first rabies vaccine. The first diphtheria vaccines were produced in 1914 from a mixture of diphtheria toxin and antitoxin, produced from the serum of an inoculated animal, but the safety of the inoculation was marginal and it was not widely used. The United States recorded 206,000 cases of diphtheria in 1921 resulting in 15,520 deaths. In 1923 parallel efforts by Gaston Ramon at the Pasteur Institute and Alexander Glennie at the Wellcome Research Laboratories, later part of GlaxoSmithKline, led to the discovery that a safer vaccine could be produced by treating diphtheria toxin with formaldehyde. In 1944, Maurice Hilleman of Squibb Pharmaceuticals developed the first vaccine against Japanese encephalitis. Hilleman would later move to Merck where he would play a key role in the development of vaccines against measles, mumps, chickenpox, rubella, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and meningitis. Unsafe drugs and early industry regulation. In 1937 over 100 people died after ingesting a solution of the antibacterial sulfonilamide formulated in the toxic solvent diethylene glycol. Prior to the 20th century, Drugs were generally produced by small-scale manufacturers with little regulatory control over manufacturing or claims of safety and efficacy. To the extent that such laws did exist, enforcement was lax. In the United States, increased regulation of vaccines and other biological drugs was spurred by tetanus outbreaks and deaths caused by the distribution of contaminated smallpox vaccine and diphtheria antitoxin. The Biologics Control Act of 1902 required that federal government grant pre-market approval for every biological drug and for the process and facility producing such drugs. This was followed in 1906 by the Pure Food and Drugs Act, which forbade the interstate distribution of adulterated or misbranded foods and drugs. A drug was considered misbranded if it contained alcohol, morphine, opium, cocaine, or any of several other potentially dangerous or addictive drugs, and if its label failed to indicate the quantity or proportion of such drugs. The government's attempts to use the law to prosecute manufacturers for making unsupported claims of efficacy were undercut by a Supreme Court ruling restricting the federal government's enforcement powers to cases of incorrect specification of the drug's ingredients. In 1937 over 100 people died after ingesting elixir sulfonilamide manufactured by S.E. Massengill Company of Tennessee. The product was formulated in diethylene glycol, a highly toxic solvent that is now widely used as antifreeze. Under the laws extant at that time, Prosecution of the manufacturer was possible only under the technicality that the product had been called an elixir, which literally implied a solution in ethanol. In response to this episode, the U.S. Congress passed the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, which for the first time required pre-market demonstration of safety before a drug could be sold, and explicitly prohibited false therapeutic claims. The post-war years, 1945-1970. Further advances in anti-infective research. The aftermath of World War II saw an explosion in the discovery of new classes of antibacterial drugs 28 including the cephalosporins, developed by Eli Lilly based on the seminal work of Giuseppe Brazzu and Edward Abraham, streptomycin, discovered during a Merck-funded research program in Selman Waxman's laboratory, the tetracyclines, discovered at Letterle Laboratories, now a part of Pfizer, erythromycin, discovered at Eli Lilly & Co., and their extension to an increasingly wide range of
Bacterial pathogens. Streptomycin, discovered during a Merck-funded research program in Selman Waxman's laboratory at Rutgers in 1943, became the first effective treatment for tuberculosis. At the time of its discovery, sanatoriums for the isolation of tuberculosis-infected people were an ubiquitous feature of cities in developed countries, with 50% dying within five years of admission. A Federal Trade Commission report issued in 1958 attempted to quantify the effect of antibiotic development on American public health. The report found that over the period 1946 to 1955, there was a 42% drop in the incidence of diseases for which antibiotics were effective and only a 20% drop in those for which antibiotics were not effective. The report concluded that it appears that the use of antibiotics, early diagnosis, and other factors have limited the epidemic spread and thus the number of these diseases which have occurred. The study further examined mortality rates for eight common diseases for which antibiotics offered effective therapy, syphilis, tuberculosis, dysentery, scarlet fever, whooping cough, meningococcal infections, and pneumonia, and found a 56% decline over the same period. Notable among these was a 75% decline in deaths due to tuberculosis. Measles cases 1938-1964 follow a highly variable epidemic pattern, with 150,000 to 850,000 cases per year. A sharp decline followed introduction of the vaccine in 1963, with fewer than 25,000 cases reported in 1968. Outbreaks around 1971 and 1977 gave 75,000 and 57,000 cases, respectively. Cases were stable at a few thousand per year until an outbreak of 28,000 in 1990. Cases declined from a few hundred per year in the early 1990s to a few dozen in the 2000s. Measles cases reported in the United States before and after introduction of the vaccine. Life expectancy by age in 1900, 1950, and 1997 United States. Percent surviving by age in 1900, 1950, and 1997. During the years 1940 to 1955, the rate of decline in the U.S. death rate accelerated from 2% per year to 8% per year, then returned to the historical rate of 2% per year. The dramatic decline in the immediate post-war years has been attributed to the rapid development of new treatments and vaccines for infectious disease that occurred during these years. Vaccine development continued to accelerate, with the most notable achievement of the period being Jonas Salk's 1954 development of the polio vaccine under the funding of the nonprofit National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. The vaccine process was never patented but was instead given to pharmaceutical companies to manufacture as a low-cost generic. In 1960 Maurice Hill Eamon of Merck Sharp and Dome identified the SV40 virus, which was later shown to cause tumors in many mammalian species. It was later determined that SV40 was present as a contaminant in polio vaccine lots that had been administered to 90% of the children in the United States. The contamination appears to have originated both in the original cell stock and in monkey tissue used for production. In 2004 the United States Cancer Institute announced that it had concluded that SV40 is not associated with cancer in people. Other notable new vaccines of the period include those for measles, 1962, John Franklin Enders of Children's Medical Center Boston, later refined by Maurice Hill-Eman at Merck, Rubella, 1969, Hill-Eman, Merck, and Mumps, 1967, Hill-Eman, Merck, the United States incidences of rubella, congenital rubella syndrome, measles, and mumps all fell by 95% in the immediate aftermath of widespread vaccination. The first 20 years of licensed measles vaccination in the U.S. prevented an estimated 52 million cases of the disease, 17,400 cases of mental retardation, and 5,200 deaths. Development and Marketing of Antihypertensive Drugs Hypertension is a risk factor for atherosclerosis, heart failure, 
coronary artery disease, stroke, renal disease, and peripheral arterial disease, and is the most important risk factor for cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, in industrialized countries. Prior to 1940 approximately 23% of all deaths among persons over age 50 were attributed to hypertension. Severe cases of hypertension were treated by surgery. Early developments in the field of treating hypertension included quaternary ammonium ion sympathetic nervous system blocking agents, but these compounds were never widely used due to their severe side effects, because the long-term health consequences of high blood pressure had not yet been established, and because they had to be administered by injection. In 1952 researchers at SIBA discovered the first orally available vasodilator, hydralazine. A major shortcoming of hydralazine monotherapy was that it lost its effectiveness over time, tachyphylaxis. In the mid-1950s Carl H. Bayer, James M. Sprague, John E. Bayer, and Frederick C. Novello of Merck & Co. discovered and developed chlorothiazide, which remains the most widely used antihypertensive drug today. This development was associated with a substantial decline in the mortality rate among people with hypertension. The inventors were recognized by a Public Health Lasker Award in 1975 for the saving of untold thousands of lives and the alleviation of the suffering of millions of victims of hypertension. A 2009 Cochrane review concluded that thiazide antihypertensive drugs reduce the risk of death, stroke, coronary heart disease, and cardiovascular events in people with high blood pressure. In the ensuring years other classes of antihypertensive drug were developed and found wide acceptance in combination therapy, including loop diuretics, Lasix-slash-furosemide, Hoxed Pharmaceuticals, 1963, Beta Blockers, ACE Inhibitors, and Angiotensin Receptor Blockers. ACE Inhibitors reduce the risk of new-onset kidney disease RR0.71 and death RR0.84 in diabetic patients, irrespective of whether they have hypertension. Oral Contraceptives Prior to the Second World War, birth control was prohibited in many countries, and in the United States even the discussion of contraceptive methods sometimes led to prosecution under Comstock laws. The history of the development of oral contraceptives is thus closely tied to the birth control movement and the efforts of activists Margaret Sanger, Mary Dennett, and Emma Goldman. Based on fundamental research performed by Gregory Pincus and synthetic methods for progesterone developed by Carl Jurassi at Syntex and by Frank Colton at G.D. Searle & Co., the first oral contraceptive, Innovid, was developed by E.D. Searle & Co. and approved by the FDA in 1960. The original formulation incorporated vastly excessive doses of hormones, and caused severe side effects. Nonetheless, by 1962, 1 1.2 million American women were on the pill, and by 1965 the number had increased to 6.5 million. The availability of a convenient form of temporary contraceptive led to dramatic changes in social mores including expanding the range of lifestyle options available to women, reducing the reliance of women on men for contraceptive practice, encouraging the delay of marriage, and increasing premarital cohabitation. Malformation of a baby born to a mother who had taken thalidomide while pregnant. In the U.S., a push for revisions of the FDNC Act emerged from congressional hearings led by Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee in 1959. The hearings covered a wide range of policy issues, including advertising abuses, questionable efficacy of drugs, and the need for greater regulation of the industry. While momentum for new legislation temporarily flagged under extended debate, a new tragedy emerged that underscored the need for more comprehensive regulation and provided the driving force for the passage of new laws. On September 12, 1960, an American licensee, the William S. Merrill Company of Cincinnati, submitted a new drug application for Kevadon, thalidomide, a sedative that had been marketed in Europe since 1956. The FDA medical officer in charge of reviewing the compound, Francis Kelsey, 
believed that the data supporting the safety of thalidomide was incomplete. The firm continued to pressure Kelsey and the FDA to approve the application until November 1961, when the drug was pulled off the German market because of its association with grave congenital abnormalities. Several thousand newborns in Europe and elsewhere suffered the teratogenic effects of thalidomide. Without approval from the FDA, the firm distributed Kevadon to over 1,000 physicians there under the guise of investigational use. Over 20,000 Americans received thalidomide in the study, including 624 pregnant patients, and about 17 known newborns suffered the effects of the drug. The thalidomide tragedy resurrected Kefauver's bill to enhance drug regulation that had stalled in Congress, and the Kefauver-Harris Amendment became law on October 10, 1962. Manufacturers henceforth had to prove to FDA that their drugs were effective as well as safe before they could go on the U.S. market. The FDA received authority to regulate advertising of prescription drugs and to establish good manufacturing practices. The law required that all drugs introduced between 1938 and 1962 had to be effective. An FDA, National Academy of Sciences collaborative study showed that nearly 40% of these products were not effective. A similarly comprehensive study of over-the-counter products began 10 years later. 1970-1980s, Statens. In 1971, Akira Endo, a Japanese biochemist working for the pharmaceutical company Sankyo, identified Mevastatin, a molecule produced by the fungus Penicillium citronum, as an inhibitor of HMGCOA reductase, a critical enzyme used by the body to produce cholesterol. Animal trials showed very good inhibitory effect as in clinical trials, However a long-term study in dogs found toxic effects at higher doses and as a result Mevastatin was believed to be too toxic for human use. Mevastatin was never marketed, because of its adverse effects of tumors, muscle deterioration, and sometimes death in laboratory dogs. P. Roy Vigilos, chief scientist and later CEO of Merck & Co., was interested, and made several trips to Japan starting in 1975. By 1978, Merck had isolated Levastatin from the fungus Aspergillus teruos, first marketed in 1987 as Mevacor. In April 1994, the results of a Merck-sponsored study, the Scandinavian Simvastatin Survival Study, were announced. Researchers tested Simvastatin, later sold by Merck as Zocor, on 4,444 patients with high cholesterol and heart disease. After five years, the study concluded the patients saw a 35% reduction in their cholesterol, and their chances of dying of a heart attack were reduced by 42%. In 1995, Zocor and Mevacor both made Merck over 1 billion US dollars. Endo was awarded the 2006 Japan Prize, and the Lasker Debakey Clinical Medical Research Award in 2008. For his pioneering research into a new class of molecules for lowering cholesterol. Research and Development Drug discovery is the process by which potential drugs are discovered or designed. In the past, most drugs have been discovered either by isolating the active ingredient from traditional remedies or by serendipitous discovery. Modern biotechnology often focuses on understanding the metabolic pathways related to a disease state or pathogen, and manipulating these pathways using molecular biology or biochemistry. A great deal of early-stage drug discovery has traditionally been carried out by universities and research institutions. Drug development refers to activities undertaken after a compound is identified as a potential drug in order to establish its suitability as a medication. Objectives of drug development are to determine appropriate formulation and dosing, as well as to establish safety. Research in these areas generally includes a combination of in vitro studies, in vivo studies, and clinical trials. The cost of late-stage development has meant it is usually done by the larger pharmaceutical companies. Often, Large multinational corporations exhibit vertical integration, 
participating in a broad range of drug discovery and development, manufacturing and quality control, marketing, sales, and distribution. Smaller organizations, on the other hand, often focus on a specific aspect such as discovering drug candidates or developing formulations. Often, collaborative agreements between research organizations and large pharmaceutical companies are formed to explore the potential of new drug substances. More recently, multinationals are increasingly relying on contract research organizations to manage drug development. The cost of innovation. Drug discovery and development are very expensive, of all compounds investigated for use in humans only a small fraction are eventually approved in most nations by government-appointed medical institutions or boards, who have to approve new drugs before they can be marketed in those countries. In 2010-18 NMEs, new molecular entities, were approved and three biologics by the FDA, or 21 in total, which is down from 26 in 2009 and 24 in 2008. On the other hand, there were only 18 approvals in total in 2007 and 22 back in 2006. Since 2001, the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research has averaged 22.9 approvals a year. This approval comes only after heavy investment in preclinical development and clinical trials, as well as a commitment to ongoing safety monitoring. Drugs which fail partway through this process often incur large costs, while generating no revenue in return. If the cost of these failed drugs is taken into account, the cost of developing a successful new drug, new chemical entity, or NCE, has been estimated at about 1.3 billion US dollars, not including marketing expenses. Professors Light and Lexchine reported in 2012, however, that the rate of approval for new drugs has been a relatively stable average rate of 15 to 25 for decades. Industry-wide research and investment reached a record $65.3 billion in 2009. While the cost of research in the U.S. was about $34.2 billion between 1995 and 2010, revenues rose faster, revenues rose by $200.4 billion in that time. A study by the consulting firm Bain & Company reported that the cost for discovering, developing, and launching, which factored in marketing and other business expenses, a new drug, along with the prospective drugs that fail, rose over a five-year period to nearly $1.7 billion in 2003. According to Forbes, by 2010 development costs were between $4 billion to $11 billion per drug. Some of these estimates also take into account the opportunity cost of investing capital many years before revenues are realized. Because of the very long time needed for discovery, development, and approval of pharmaceuticals, these costs can accumulate to nearly half the total expense. A direct consequence within the pharmaceutical industry value chain is that major pharmaceutical multinationals tend to increasingly outsource risks related to fundamental research, which somewhat reshapes the industry ecosystem with biotechnology companies playing an increasingly important role, and overall strategies being redefined accordingly. Some approved drugs, such as those based on reformulation of an existing active ingredient are much less expensive to develop. Controversies Due to repeated accusations and findings that some clinical trials conducted or funded by pharmaceutical companies may report only positive results for the preferred medication, the industry has been looked at much more closely by independent groups and government agencies. In response to specific cases in which unfavorable data from pharmaceutical company-sponsored research was not published, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America have published new guidelines urging companies to report all findings and limit the financial involvement in drug companies of researchers. U.S. Congress signed into law a bill which requires Phase 2 and Phase 3 clinical trials to be registered by the sponsor on the clinicaltrials.gov website run by the NIH. Drug researchers not directly employed by pharmaceutical companies often look to companies for grants, 
and companies often look to researchers for studies that will make their products look favorable. Sponsored researchers are rewarded by drug companies, for example with support for their conference-slash-symposium costs. Lecture scripts and even journal articles presented by academic researchers may actually be ghostwritten by pharmaceutical companies. An investigation by ProPublica found that at least 21 doctors have been paid more than $500,000 for speeches and consulting by drugs manufacturers since 2009, with half of the top earners working in psychiatry, and about $2 billion in total paid to doctors for such services. AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson and Eli Lilly have paid billions of dollars in federal settlements over allegations that they paid doctors to promote drugs for unapproved uses. Some prominent medical schools have since tightened rules on faculty acceptance of such payments by drug companies. In contrast to this viewpoint, an article and associated editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine in May 2015 emphasized the importance of pharmaceutical industry physician interactions for the development of novel treatments, and argued that moral outrage over industry malfeasance had unjustifiably led many to overemphasize the problems created by financial conflicts of interest. The article noted that major healthcare organizations such as National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences of the National Institutes of Health, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, the World Economic Forum, the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, and the Food and Drug Administration had encouraged greater interactions between physicians and industry in order to bring greater benefits to patients. Response to Coronavirus in September 12, 2020 Doctors Without Borders warned that high prices and monopolies on medicines, tests, and vaccines would prolong the pandemic and cost lives. They urged governments to prevent profiteering, using compulsory licenses as needed, as had already been done by Canada, Chile, Ecuador, Germany, and Israel. On February 20, 46 U.S. lawmakers called for the U.S. government not to grant monopoly rights when giving out taxpayer development money for any coronavirus vaccines and treatments, to avoid giving exclusive control of prices and availability to private manufacturers. On February 26, 2020, the U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary, former pharmaceutical CEO Alex Azar testified before the House Energy and Commerce Committee. At this meeting Azar repeatedly refused to say that any coronavirus vaccine or treatment would be made accessible to all Americans, not only to those wealthy enough to pay. Representatives questioning him criticized his position. Hours later, President Trump, who was said be skeptical of the secretary's ability to handle the job, abruptly transferred responsibility for the pandemic to Vice President Mike Pence. Some attached importance to the fact that the president then walked out on Azar's explanation to the press that he was remaining as Health and Human Services Secretary, it was reported that Trump had not dismissed him during a crisis for the sake of appearances. On March 2, U.S. Representative Jan Schakowsky wrote to Alex Azar, saying you must understand that the House of Representatives would find it unacceptable if taxpayer dollars were used to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 and the rights to produce and market that vaccine were subsequently handed over to a pharmaceutical manufacturer through an exclusive license with no conditions on pricing or access, allowing the company to charge whatever it would like and essentially selling the vaccine back to the public who paid for its development. The March 6 Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act, 2020 originally allowed the U.S. government to bring in compulsory licensing where prices are excessive, after lobbying, this was removed, and a provision was added to prevent the U.S. government from taking any action on affordability if it might delay coronavirus vaccine or treatment availability. Observers disagreed as to whether the bill would help or hinder affordability. Regeneron Pharmaceuticals made a deal with the US government Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority that the government would fund 80% of the costs for Regeneron to develop and manufacture coronavirus treatments, and Regeneron would retain the right to set prices and control production. 
This deal was criticized in the New York Times. Such deals are not unusual for routine drug development in the American pharmaceutical market. American pharmaceutical company Gilead sought and obtained orphan drug status for Remdesivir from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, on March 23, 2020. This provision is intended to encourage the development of drugs affecting fewer than 200,000 Americans by granting strengthened and extended legal monopoly rights to the manufacturer, along with waivers on taxes and government fees. Remdesivir is a candidate for treating COVID-19, at the time the status was granted, fewer than 200,000 Americans had COVID-19, but numbers were climbing rapidly as the COVID-19 pandemic reached the U.S., and crossing the threshold soon was considered inevitable. Remdesivir was developed by Gilead with over $79 million in U.S. government funding. In May 2020, Gilead announced that it would provide the first 940,000 doses of Remdesivir to the federal government free of charge. After facing strong public reactions, Gilead gave up the orphan drug status for Remdesivir on March 25. Gilead retains 20-year Remdesivir patents in more than 70 countries. In May 2020, the company further announced that it was in discussions with several generics companies to provide rights to produce Remdesivir for developing countries, and with the medicine's patent pool to provide broader generic access. U.S. diagnostic test maker Cefiat Inc. received a U.S. FDA emergency use authorization for a COVID-19 test called Expert Express SARS-CoV-2. The test uses the same machines which are commonly used to test for tuberculosis and HIV, among other diseases, and gives results in 45 minutes, faster than some other tests. Cefiat announced that they would charge $19.80 per test in developing countries. Doctors Without Borders stated that that price was not affordable in countries where people live on less than $2 a day. They estimated that the cost to Cefiat of providing the test is as low as $3, and called the offered price profiteering, asking that Cefiat make a more moderate profit by selling the tests for $5 US dollars each. The Treatment Action Group, TAG, seconded this request, saying that the development of the tests, and their purchase and global deployment, has been done with public funds, while the owners of Cepiad made profits of $3 billion in 2019. TAG also started the Time for $5 campaign. Analogous tests for hepatitis C virus, another RNA virus, cost from 50 US cents, for 5-minute antibody tests, to 5 US dollars, for more complex genome tests similar to Cepiad's. Widespread testing with these cheap tests has been critical to eliminating hepatitis C in Egypt, and similar mass testing techniques have regionally been successfully used against COVID-19. Product approval. In the United States, new pharmaceutical products must be approved by the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, as being both safe and effective. This process generally involves submission of an investigational new drug filing with sufficient preclinical data to support proceeding with human trials. Following IND approval, three phases of progressively larger human clinical trials may be conducted. Phase I generally studies toxicity using healthy volunteers. Phase II can include pharmacokinetics and dosing in patients, and Phase III is a very large study of efficacy in the intended patient population. Following the successful completion of Phase III testing, a new drug application is submitted to the FDA. The FDA reviews the data and if the product is seen as having a positive benefit-risk assessment, approval to market the product in the U.S. is granted. A fourth phase of post-approval surveillance is also often required due to the fact that even the largest clinical trials cannot effectively predict the prevalence of rare side effects. Post-marketing surveillance ensures that after marketing the safety of a drug is monitored closely. In certain instances, its indication may need to be limited to particular patient groups, and in others the substance is withdrawn from the market completely.
In the UK, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency approves and evaluates drugs for use. Normally an approval in the UK and other European countries comes later than one in the USA. Then it is the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, for England and Wales, who decides if and how the National Health Service, NHS, will allow, in the sense of paying for, their use. The British National Formulary is the core guide for pharmacists and clinicians. In many non-US Western countries, a fourth hurdle of cost-effectiveness analysis has developed before new technologies can be provided. This focuses on the efficacy price tag, in terms of, for example, the cost per QALY, of the technologies in question. In England and Wales NICE decides whether and in what circumstances drugs and technologies will be made available by the NHS, whilst similar arrangements exist with the Scottish Medicines Consortium in Scotland, and the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee in Australia. A product must pass the threshold for cost-effectiveness if it is to be approved. Treatments must represent value for money and a net benefit to society. Orphan drugs. There are special rules for certain rare diseases, orphan diseases, in several major drug regulatory territories. For example, diseases involving fewer than 200,000 patients in the United States, or larger populations in certain circumstances are subject to the Orphan Drug Act. Because medical research and development of drugs to treat such diseases is financially disadvantageous, companies that do so are rewarded with tax reductions, fee waivers, and market exclusivity on that drug for a limited time, seven years, regardless of whether the drug is protected by patents. <laughs> what y'all think about that? Ooh-wee, that's a whole lot. And y'all see, the big part about all this thing here that it all boils down to money. Now, the pharmaceutical company, as y'all just heard, is just all this, like I'm going to talk about right now, just my opinion, not the facts. Like I told y'all, I think they got a cure for this coronavirus, but it all comes down to money. It always, it always comes down to the patent. The patent on these things, you know. A virus like this here, like you just heard, our government saying that they're they, they going to give 80% the cost to develop this drug. 80 cost to, to develop it and then going to give the rights to that company. Right? For like 12, 15, 20 years, something like that. Going to give them the rights to own that virus or, 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 that, or that antidote that the American public just paid 80% of the cost on. That means that we helped develop 80% of that, of that drug the American public developed, have developed. Then they're going to turn around, and what they also did was they also didn't put a cap on what the pharmaceutical company can charge the American public for that antidote. And not so much what they're going to charge initially the American public, what they're going to charge the government for each citizen that go out and take it. Because the poor person out there, he, he can't afford to pay for it. So the government is guaranteed to pay for it. So we didn't put 80% of the cost to, to develop the, the vaccine to, back, to vaccinate our folks here. And then we just gave the rights of ownership to whatever that company is. Now, y'all heard the name of the company now. Go back and listen to the pot talk again. Y'all heard the name of the company. To develop, we gave, we gave them full rights. So that means what they're going to do is they're going to develop it at 80% the cost of the American people. They're going to turn around and charge the American people for a vaccine for the coronavirus, then they're going to have the right to go around the world to, serve, to sell that vaccine at their cost to all these other governments. That's the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> now, I'm not here to say whether it's right or wrong because uh, we need the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, we, we, we need, I mean, life has really advanced because of the pharmaceutical industry. 
But at the same time, the pharmaceutical industry has got a stronghold in the politics. And the best way to pilot, the best way to strong arm somebody, right, is to create a need. You know, and I'm not, I'm not gonna get off on minimum wage or anything like that. They're saying, what they gotta do with minimum wage? But you gotta create a need. Once you create a need, see you go, you see you go, you you go and tell a person so much, right? But once you create a need, then you can name your price. And that's what these pharmaceutical companies do. They name their price. But they have had a we have had a lot of advancement in life expectancy, long life expectancy, because of the pharmaceutical industry. So on one hand, I say to myself, I say, boy, these pharmaceutical companies, man, they run everything. But then on the other hand, I say to myself, if it wasn't for them, a lot of us wouldn't be alive. Now, here's another thing that's interesting to me. Now, I got to tell y'all, this is just my opinion and not the facts. Like when you see them commercials right on TV say that, you know, this uh this this, this little drug here give you <laughs> all right, okay, I'm gonna say it. This little drug here give you a, a little prolong. I call it Mr. Prolong. You know, you can get in bed and you can go four hours. <laughs> I don't know who wanna go four hours, but you can go four hours. If you go long than four hours, you go call a doctor because something wrong. Now, a lot of these drugs that they develop, I'm telling y'all right here, a lot of these drugs that they develop. Right. These drugs aren't 100 percent proven because of the cost of research. I mean, if you folks understand and this is and this is another reason why I can understand why pharmaceutical companies want to pay, you know, want to charge so much for these prescriptions and these medications and these cures and these antidotes, because they do put a lot of money in the research and development. Now, this is just my opinion. Now, a lot of times. You know, when a, when a company get, when they get so far into their development stage, if they don't want to do human trials, but the, but the drug is proven to have some type of positive to it, a lot of times they release those drugs to the public. They do. They experiment on the public. And the FDA probably let them do it. That's why these commercials come out on TV say that this drug may give you a hard on for four hours, right? But last morning falls, you call a doctor. But then it starts listening to all these side effects with all this pretty music, pretty music, and this and 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 this and and and, and this and this white guy and this and this older white woman they holding hands, running by the pond, and this black couple, old couple, uh, couple, they laying out by a tree, you know, eating grapes, and then the good music playing, and they telling you these side effects may cause hair loss may cause sugar diabetes, may cause all the other stuff, right? But it's going to give you a heart off for four hours, right? And you say to yourself, well, why should I take out some of these all the side effects? But people take them anyway. You see, that's the thing about it. When a lot of times when they get so, so far on, on into their research, if they don't want to pay that money, right, to do human trials, to probably last another two, three years, right? They get permission to release those drugs at a certain point to the public. And then you become the guinea pig. Now, they just told you that it costs all these side effects, right? And then a lot of times when people get sick and people file, people, uh, uh, file these class lawsuits, right? Sometimes it's, it's, it's cheaper to put the thing on the market, sell it for three, four years, get sued, pin that lawsuit up in court for another four years, right? And make billions of dollars off of it and then pay millions to settle all the court cases. I mean, it's just smart economics. I mean, I know it's a, bad, it's a dirty game, but it's cheaper to put it on the market, make money off of it, and then deal with the lawsuits later because the lawsuits are going to be cheaper than it did. You're going to make billions off of it, and you probably pay maybe, mm, 
maybe 200 or 300 million dollars on lawsuits. So it's a plus win. So when y'all look at these commercials and y'all say the people crazy of all these side effects is going to do X zero, going to do all this other kind of stuff like that. That's because the trial is being done on you. And they told you the side effects because the drug was initially is, I mean, it is like Mr. Prolong. I think Mr. Pro, I like Mr. Prolong. I like me a little enhancement. I don't want to go four hours though. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's like that. When the, when, when the Mr. Prolong pills was first, was first developed, it was developed for high blood pressure. They weren't intending on, on that pill to, to give me and them little hard ons, you know, us men, them hard ons for that long. They didn't intend that. It was it, it was trials for heartburn. I mean, not heartburn for high blood pressure. But along the way, they saw that the effects of it was one of the side effects was it gave me an erection for a period of time. So that's how we get these Mr. Prolong pills. I call them Mr. Prolong. <laughs> That's how we get these these male erection pills. It was a side effect from development from when they when they, when they, when they was trying to when they were trying to find stuff for high blood pressure, hypertension. You see what I'm saying? So you go through these clinical trials, right? If they don't pay these clinical trials, they put it out there on the market, and you be the guinea pig for because you watch this commercial because it says it's gonna get rid of your anxiety, but it's gonna call these other side effects. They told you so. Four years down the line, when they go to court after they made three billion dollars off that thing, and you in this class lawsuit come about, and they get on TV and said if, if you a victim of Xero or something like that, you can be a part of a class lawsuit. They sell that out of court, but they sell it four five years later after they made three billion dollars off of it. They sell it for two three hundred million. That's how that work, and it's smart economics. I can't be mad at that. Why should I go through three, four more years of uh, of human testing plus all these files with the FDA, all this stuff when I can just put it on the market, right? Make money, get sued off of it, pay a lawsuit, and still pocket money. Now I know a lot of government regulation. We have a lot of government regulations in this country, and a lot of government regulations I think is good, but a lot of government regulations also run the cross cost of things up. See, that's why, like I tell you, this coronavirus thing out here, there's a kid that's always been a cure for it. But what's going on now is red tape. Who going to own this cure? Because if we give America this cure for these folks and we don't own it 100 percent, that means we don't have the patents or the rights to take it to other countries and sell it to them, especially small developing countries who can't afford it. But we can still make a profit off of it if we own the full rights of it. Because if we don't own the full rights of it, and we take this drug to other countries, then we got to, we, we got we got to play the patent some patent rights to the United States for it. So United States, we ain't giving y'all the cure for this thing. All we're giving you, like, giving you the cure for this thing is if you give us hundred percent patent rights. That's the only way we give it to you, and we can also set our own price points. See, because America wanted to say, well, look, if we help you and give you money to develop this thing, then you have a price point of, say, $4. But the pharmaceuticals are going no, this America, we're going to charge y'all about $30. And America said, no, we ain't going to do this. So they say, okay, well, we're going to let this virus go on then. <laughs> it's just good business. Have all the business now do the same thing? I'm not mad at the pharmaceutical companies. It's all about money. It's all about business. Because this is how this thing is set up. And our politicians, our politicians, man, I just don't know what to say about our politicians. I, I don't know what to say about our politicians. You know, I can understand the good intention of regulating 
I really do. But the high cost of regular issue, it, it should be some, somewhere along it, it should be smart politics somewhere along the way. I mean, see what we're doing with these pharmaceutical companies. Because then a pharmaceutical company can pay thousands of dollars to, to, to some politician to buy his vote, but to buy his vote. But that's not the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. Do you know a lot of pharmaceutical companies and these lobbyist folks, they write these uh, pharmaceutical, uh, uh, I'm not going to say handbooks, these uh, pharmaceutical policies. A lot of stuff is written by lobbyists. Not the lobbyists themselves, but the lobbyist organization. The pharmaceutical book, the pharmaceutical companies actually write policy and give to the politicians to vote on. Man, is that crazy? You would think that there's some government body somewhere who's sitting down writing policy on the pharmaceutical company. No, the pharmaceutical companies write their own policy. They just give these, they just give these bills to, to our congressional folks to look at, and which they don't look at, they, 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 let, they let their pages look at. And their pages get give them a summary of what the bill is before they go in and vote it. So a lot of politicians don't even know what they voting on. They get summaries from their page. That's why they tell you folks, if you want to do anything in Washington, D.C., you don't try to contact the congressman, you contact the page, the person who wait who work for him. I think that's what they call pages, I think. Who work for the congressman. Because those are the ones that look at all and read all the bills. Not the congressman. He don't have time to look at all the bills because he's out trying to make money. He's he, he trying to fill up his war check, chest for the next election coming up in two or three years. He ain't looking at these bills. The pharmaceutical companies know that. So that's why the pharmaceutical companies hire these pages. How do you think a lot of politicians, it's like the guy who's sitting on the FDA or the medical board right now. He was part of the pharmaceutical company. The government hires part of pharmaceutical companies to sit on the FDA board. Now you think, I used to work for the pharmaceutical company. I mean, I used to be a government official. I mean, I used to be, I used to be a, a, pharma, a pharmaceutical. I used to be a pharmaceutical rep or a lobbyist. Now I was sitting on on, on the FDA board or one of, one of the one of the legislative board for our medical health in this country. I'm sitting at the head of it. Do you think I'm gonna have American citizen uh, best interest at heart? No, I'm gonna have the pharmaceutical industry because I'm still part of the pharmaceutical. I'm still getting paid on the side. A lot of politicians when they leave Washington, they go work. They go become a lobbyist. Because they know the ins and outs. And these pages, that's where the money is at. The pharmaceutical company, again, they write their own policies. Now, here's, a, here's another crazy thing. I mean, I used to go to doctor. I used to go to, I stopped going to my doctor. I like my doctor. But I, but he, but he, I call my doctor a drug dealer. Well, he ain't much of a drug dealer because he don't, he don't try no drugs. But my wife doctor, when I was married, I switched from my doctor, because only my doctor do was, he come in there with a little tape recorder, he talk to you, now, hey, how you going there? And he record his tape recorder, and then he, he you know, he he rub on you a little bit, you know, but I used to have to watch him, you know, hey, hey watch your hands, doc, you see what I'm saying? He get a little happy down there by, by my, my three little buddies down there, you know, but I used to say, hey, doc, hey, 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 you know, hey, uh, he's talking to the tape recorder, you know, he's more interested in your psyche and stuff like that, right? He wasn't much of a doctor, but I liked him anyway, but I switched going to him. That's when I started going to my wife's doctor. Now, my wife at the time, she had pills for everything. But I was kind of curious to see how good was her doctor. Now, her doctor wasn't good at all, see, because I kind of watched the doctor. Anytime my ex-wife went in there with a problem, she always came home with a pill. I ain't understand that. How you come home with a pill? How does lady know that because she interviewed you and then she go get a pill? So I watched her one day, right? So what I did was, um, 
you know, my wife was uh, in there and I went there with my wife and I was sitting there. Right. And when the doctor came in and kind of interviewed her, then she left out. And when she left out, I said, well, you know what? Who? I said, I'm going to go to the bathroom. So I went on and went to the bathroom. Her doctor was sitting at, at the computer. Now, her doctor was punching something into the computer, probably medical MD or something like that. Right. And and the symptoms that my wife had told her, my ex-wife had told her she was typing into the, her little computer and and it came back what well, she should she should subscribe to, right? So I say, look at this woman. You know, she had the computer, you know, typing in some little thing. And then I went back to, to the room and this doc came in there and doc said, Well, I want you to try this. I'm like, what kind of crap is this? She said, try. Now, whenever somebody say they want you to try something, that don't mean it's gonna work, right? That just means what it's gonna mean. She wants you to try something. And if this don't work, I want you to try this. Now, one thing folks don't understand, when they give you all that medication to put in your body, how do you know how, how do all that medication work together? That was the crazy thing to me. See, I, I don't take nothing. See, I'll give me some apple cider vinegar or something, you know, but I don't take nothing. Because when they give you all that medication, they haven't tested all that medication with each other. If they give you uh, this and they give you this and they give you this and they're supposed to be doing these different things, how do you know how they work together? You could be sluggish about to have a heart attack because all that different kind of medication you put in your body. So I couldn't understand that. When she say, I'm on, you, you can try this. I look, I say, Doc, I say, you telling her she can try this. I say, is it going to work? She say, well, we don't know it's going to work, but you can try this. And if this don't work, then she can try this. And my ex-wife took all, had all that stuff at home. She got a headache, she tried this. And I be looking at her and myself, why you got a headache is because you, you, you trying too much stuff that woman telling you. Doctor, when I'm, when I'm trying to tell y'all something right now, your doctor don't know nothing. Your doctor don't know nothing. Whenever you tell your doctor something, they go back to that computer and they see what the pharmaceutical company recommends. I'm sitting there one day at my white doctor and then this guy, he comes, he comes rolling in with a little briefcase on wheels. You think he rolling through the airport somewhere. He rolling with a briefcase in there, you know. And I'm sitting there looking at, looking at this joker, right? So I tell the lady, I say, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. Right? Yeah, about that. I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I got to go to the bathroom. So I get something. I go to the bathroom. I follow him, right? He goes to the doctor's office, and he open, he, 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 he opened that rolling suitcase up, and man, he opened that thing up. He had pills everywhere. He had every kind of thing. Now, the medical rep, he comes there. He gives he gives these samples, per se, to the doctor to say, this works for this, 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 this. I want you to try this. He tells the doctor, I want you to try this. So then, then, then your doctor tell you, I want you to try this, something that he told the doctor to try on you. Trials are being doing every trials are being done every day on normal people. So whenever your doctor tell you to try something, y'all listen to me. That's what they tell you. They ain't telling you it work, they tell you to try it. That's all it is. And you putting that in your body, then you put other stuff in your body, you compounding, and you don't know how long it takes for that body that stuff to psych out. It's not like your doctor tell you, look, I want you to try this. And if this don't work, wait 30 days to this stuff cycle out your system, and then I want you to try this. No, they tell you, folks, I want you to try this. And if this don't work, you come back next week. That didn't work. I want you to try this. Now you have residual of the prior medication in your body. Your doctor don't know nothing. These pharmaceutical reps are the ones who tell your doctor what to subscribe. Your doctor goes back to a computer and looks at that computer and that computer from some pharmaceutical website that they got to play a monthly fee on to look at 
tells them what they want to subscribe for whatever your ailments. That's why my doctor go in and do all them interviews. But see, my doctor, see what I'm saying? I went down, actually, I went to her doctor for a few minutes there. But then I stopped going to her doctor, went back to my doctor. Because my doctor, he ain't going to prescribe nothing. He coming up to the tape recorder. Like I said, he say little things, instead of the tape recorder, interview you. And then he may touch you, breathe, look, look, look at your chest and all that kind of stuff. And then he out. He don't prescribe nothing. But see, I got him one day. I said, hey, doc, look here, man. I'm having a little problems with, with my little buddy. You know, I need to, you know, I need, need to, it's my wife's our anniversary. You know, hey, do you have any samples that you can give me? <laughs> I said, I wasn't going to pay for no Viagra or no, or no Seattle. I wasn't going to pay for it. I said, Doc, you got any samples? <laughs> he said, he said, yeah, Mr. Martin, I got some samples. Man, he came back and gave me some Viagra. That Viagra wasn't nothing. So I say, I came back a couple weeks later. I said, hey, Doc, you know, that Viagra, that Viagra ain't, it ain't, it ain't, it ain't do me too good. You got any more samples or something different? He said, yeah, I got some of this Seattle. I said, now, Seattle's worked a little better. You did. Seattle's worked a little better. But I'm saying is that I knew he had samples. I wasn't going to pay for no medical prescriptions when I know he had samples. I want to get some of them samples. You see what I'm saying? But see, but I found out the best, you know, the best, you know, just my opinion and not the facts. You know, I go to the gas station and get my Mr. Prolong pills. I don't know what them Chinese put in there, but boy, show do the job. <laughs> I'll just do the job. But look, I'm just saying that the pharmaceutical companies are the ones and the pharmaceutical reps, these are the ones that instruct the doctors on what to prescribe to you or to try. That's what I'm saying. Your doctor don't know nothing. Your doctor isn't involved in research and development. I asked my doctor one, I asked my doctor one time about apple cider vinegar. You know, apple cider vinegar is good for cholesterol, right? It keeps your cholesterol down, keeps your blood thin down. Good for a lot of things. Just don't take a whole lot of it because it'll mess your, your, your stomach up now. That's just my opinion, not the facts, okay? He say, what is apple cider vinegar? I'm like, God dang, he don't know nothing, do he? I mean, he said like you're a doctor. I mean, you, you, you should know some of this alternative stuff, you know what I mean? I can buy something else and he ain't know nothing about it. I'm like, man, this dude's a quack. But I like it because he don't prescribe nothing to me. You see what I'm saying? The only time he gave me something, like I said again, is when I asked him for some samples. And I, the two samples that he gave me, he ain't had none beside the Agra and Seattle. So I don't remember. I just go in there, get, get my little physical for work, you know, and come on out of there because I'm all right. You're not getting me on no medication. Matter of fact, uh, my buddy, my buddy, they, they, they would try to get me to take some of them old, uh, them gummy bears for, for, uh, for, uh, what, 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 what's this new thing? These people, these CBD crap. You know what I mean? Guy trying to send me some uh, gummy bears for, you know, they don't have any THC and all that kind of stuff. And man, taking that crap, putting that crap in my body. I don't know who made that crap, where that crap came from. Then he going to try to do little vape, the little vape pen. Man, taking that crap, putting that crap in my body. I don't know where that crap come from. Just like I don't know where some of these pharmaceuticals come from. Now, don't get, don't, and don't get me wrong now. There is some pharmaceutical stuff that I will take. If I get sick, I'll take some third flu. Yes, I will. If I if, if I mess around and get the syphilis or gonorrhea or something like that, well, I'm going to take some penicillin. You, you can bet your bottom dollar on that. You see what I'm saying? So it's a, it's a problem with clubs that I will take. But some of this new stuff they tell y'all about with all these side effects, they doing trials on y'all is what they doing. And you paying for the trial. And later on, if you live right 10 years later and you get bought in a class lawsuit, then they'll pay you off there, but they made billions off of it. This is how the game works. It ain't nothing but a big game. Whatever y'all do, you got to start following the money. If you don't follow the money, that's the bottom line. Follow the money. How you tell me in 2020, right, when we can send rockets to the sky, they can't find nothing for a virus? 
Come on, let's get real. But it's all about who's going to pay for it. And I don't blame them. I ain't getting nothing up for free. I got the cure. Why do why, why you think some of our elected officials walk around with no mask on? Because they know the truth. <laughs> Y'all be talking about, oh, look at the prison. He ain't got no mask on. Because he, he know the truth. Y'all don't know the truth. Because y'all believe everything Fox is in and MSBN and seeing y'all believe everything they say when they be going back and forth with their rhetoric. Y'all believe all that stuff. But if you if you look with your own eyes, you'll see the truth. Why do you think that 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 one gal, that one politician gal went to that beauty place and who she makes the laws and she went to that beauty place, ain't had no face mask and nothing on, got her hair blown out. They're talking about they set me up. How somebody gonna set you up when you <laughs> you you made the rule? Because they know the truth. They know too about this virus, man. Y'all running around here fighting each other. When normal citizens get into our, our argument about is the virus real, is the virus wrong? Huh? More people than they got killed in car accidents, car accidents this year than this virus didn't kill. Cancer they probably killed more people this year than, than this virus didn't kill. But y'all believe these talking heads. See, if you want to know what's going on, look at the head. Follow the money and look at the head. Ain't nobody wearing no doggone face mask who making these rules. I saw these two congressmen, right? They came out to give this interview, right? These jokers had their face masks on, right? And they came walking out to the, to the, to the podium, took their face masks off. People behind them, no face masks, and start talking to you about the virus. And you up here talking about, well, we, they giving us a regulation and we got to do it because they say, this is a man, let me tell y'all something. This virus, it ain't no different than any other flu. They have the cure for it. Y'all just, the cure is just being held hostage. We being held hostage for the, until we kick the money in or until the folks who got the cure for it can own it 100% and can regulate their own price for it. They got the cure. You see politicians running around talking with no face masks on and none of this kind of stuff. They know the truth. And then y'all say, well, this one politician, he got the virus. He probably did. He probably got the flu last year too. He probably had gonorrhea at some point too. <laughs> you know, sometimes we got you got to take that rubber off. <laughs> you know, I'll just give it, y'all. But he probably had the flu too. What you saying? Follow the money. My thing, they shut the whole country down. They killed the American economy while the rest of the world keep going because of Byron, because uh uh because uh, we've been held hostage. We've been we had, see they 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 always say America don't deal with terrorists. Well, right now we deal with a terrorist. Just my opinion, not the facts. We're dealing with a pharmaceutical terrorist who holding a kid hostage until they until they get what they want. We paying eighty percent of the cost. The American citizens they getting it for free where they can sell it to us, sell it to us, and then sell it around the world as they own. So what's going? This year is going to be coronavirus. Next year is going to be something else. So the whole country, like I told y'all on one little talk I had, shut. Oh, you shut America down. You drop no nuclear bomb on America. You didn't send no troops to America. You dropped a little virus. 
<laughs> Man, I'm telling you, these pharmaceutical companies are something else. But you know what? I can't hate on them, though. It's business. <laughs> it's business, right? Capitalist society. Ain't that weird? We're capitalist society, right? It's all about making money, right? Capitalist society. Pharmaceutical companies are all in business to make money, right? Let me tell you, now they do put a lot of money into research and development. They do. They put a lot of money in. I can't hate on them for that. Matter of fact, I can't even hate on them. Matter of fact, I remember one year I used to work at Parks and Jack Davis in uh in uh, uh Rochester, Michigan. I used to work at Parks and Davis. One year, I showed did. I worked at Parks and Davis. I'll tell you, we need to start filing the money. You look at these pharmaceutical come, look at your doctor. I'm telling you, when you go to your doctor next time, listen to your doctor when they when they tell you to try something. Try. So you gotta listen to the way people talk. You gotta listen to the way people talk. You gotta listen to words people say, how they put words together. See what I'm saying? I try to listen to every little thing. <laughs> I try to listen to every little word. How you plug that word in there? See, when you plug words in there, you gotta listen to that. You gotta listen to that. Because people always show their true attention when, when, when they talk. I'm talking about serious stuff. I'm not talking about joking around. I'm talking about serious stuff now. Follow the money. Pharmaceutical companies, they write all the regulate rules and regulations. They write the policies that they give to politicians to vote on. They write all that. Ain't no politicians or no politician aide is sitting around writing policy on the pharmaceutical company because they don't know nothing about it. Pharmaceutical company write their own policies. They write their own rules and regulation. And they spend billions of dollars paying millions of dollars to pay these politicians off to vote on it. And not just the politicians, these pages get paid too. Politicians come in there, he he come in there from 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 uh from trying to fundraise, trying to raise money, fill up his war chest. He come and they say, Well, you know, what 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 we got what we got on the docket today? And the page say, Well, we're gonna vote on uh what I have here, I have this. I have this from uh, I have this new drug policy that the farmers that the pharmaceutical reps brought over the lobbyists for us to review. I've reviewed it, and here's a quick summary. And then he actually said, "Well, you think you think something I should vote yes or no on?" And the page say, "Well, I th I, I, I think it's something promising." Because the page never say yes or no. They say something promising, or you know, you know, maybe you know, maybe it's, maybe we need a little bit more information. A little bit more information mean no. I don't think you should vote on it. If something that's promising, then the politician he going in and vote on it. But see, he already got his money from the backside from the pharmaceutical company and the patient got paid. And sometimes, sometimes congressmen don't get paid. Sometimes the page get paid for recommending, especially if, especially, especially if it's one of them page that's highly respected. They get paid because they know the pharmaceutical and lobbyists. They know everybody. They know if this page has his congressman ear or congresswoman ear. They're going to listen to that page. So that page get paid. The congressman probably won't. That way y'all can't say, well, the congressman, y'all pay pharmacy. So a lot of, lot, lot of congressmen and congress, congresswomen don't get paid by pharmaceutical companies. And what I mean by pay, I don't, I don't want to use the word bribe. <laughs> I'm just going to say pay. They don't get paid by pharmaceutical companies. But the pages do because the lobbyists know that this page has this lobbyist or congresswoman here. And they're going to vote the way that page say. See, the thing about it is that you keep a person so busy with something, they can't look at everything. But they're going to have somebody they trust looking at it as much as possible. Especially if a page been with some congressman or congresswoman for so long, that's a trusted advisor. That's like an advisor. Follow the money. 
<laughs> Ball of money. All right, well, look, I ain't going to hold y'all up too much. Too, too, too much. I just want to do this little quick little thing here. But, man, look at here. If y'all get a chance, right, go to your local cigar spot like I always tell y'all. And y'all check out this My Father, Live by You, 1922. Like I say, I call it My Father Maduro, 1922. This is a really good stick. I really enjoy this stick. I mean, I think this this is this is another really good recommendation. And I'm telling you, I mean, I'm not just saying this. Man, look, Ross is very knowledgeable. I love my little cigar spot. I support my local cigar spot. And I want y'all to support y'all local cigar spot, too. You got to do that. Now, at the beginning of a little power talk, I didn't say it like I said I was going to say it. But let me tell y'all again. Y'all support Cigars for Warriors. Support Cigars for Warriors. If you got some old cigars you don't want, find your cigar for warrior uh, rip and send your cigars to them. But they can put them together and send our troops overseas. If you go up there to the counter and you got the guy got you got them little glass jars up there for cigar war, put your spare chains in there. You ain't doing nothing with it anyway. Put a spare change in there. That helps pay for postage to send their cigars overseas to our troops over there, so they can have a little time out of mind when they smoking their cigar beside their iPhone or. Whatever kind of phone they got, all right? But look here, y'all. If you and like I say y'all again, if you can't find this, my father, Maduro nineteen twenty two, it's a local cigar spot. Y'all go online to see I hope somewhere like that, and you get some for your humidor, all right? Now, like I tell y'all all time in closing, y'all take care of everybody out there. More importantly, y'all take care of y'all self first. All right now.